line. That's the bottom line. Yeah, that's the bottom. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom. That's the bottom. That's the bottom. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom. Hey guys, Jim Wahlberg here. I want to welcome you back to part two of our interview with DMC, Daryl Mack of Run DMC. This is part two. So D, I mean, I think most people can understand the paralyzing fear of getting up in front of an audience and either performing or even just speaking in front of an audience. Um, but you did that with, with you, you drank that alcohol, it gave you the courage just to get up there, right? It didn't necessarily make the performance any better, it just gave you the strength to be able to start the performance. Um, and so I feel like throughout your book, there's a sort, a sort of a recurring theme that that alcohol gave you courage. It gave you the ability to do your job. It gave you the ability to be DMC. And so you continue to drink. You continue to drink. You continue to drink while you're performing. My therapist told me that. He said, D, you had all of this power and you were suppressing it by drinking the alcohol. You're so busy thinking, oh, the alcohol is making you powerful and right. this and that. And t just like you said from the book, I drank all this Southern Comfort so I could have courage to get on stage and perform with Run at the first event, right? Yep. And then I sat and hid on the side of the stage and wrapped with my head down. Yeah. And then I went home and yeah, threw man. up all <laughs> over the place. Yeah. So it defeated the purpose. But in my mind, it didn't defeat it. It made me... My whole thing was I got to get to Shrine Out. I'm scared yeah. to get to Rhyme Out. And I remember after the show, Joe, he knew I was drunk, but then he said, yo, D, you did really good. I like the rhyme that you said. And he just simply said to me, but next time, stand in front of the audience and say your rhyme. <laughs> so I was using the alcohol to have courage and still didn't have courage to get up in front of the people. You know, alcohol gets you through these hurdles. It gets you to be able to get on stage. It gets you to be able to perform. It gets you to be able, it helps you to be DMC. And then it turns on you, right? And then you can't, con you're, you find yourself laying on the floor. You can't control your bodily functions. I mean, it, you're, you're, in, you're in terrible condition. You're in terrible health. You're in death's doors. Like that, yep. it's like, how did this happen? The, the thing that, because right. everybody else sees it. Everybody else sees what alcohol yeah. is doing to you, right? They see yep, it as this bad thing and you see it as the glue holding your whole life together. Exactly, right? yep. Um, but yeah. man, when it turns on you, it ain't pretty. When you, um, when you, uh, when you end up in the hospital with cirrhosis, right? No pancreatitis. 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 Hold yeah. up, I had acute pancreatitis. And how long were you in the hospital? I was in the hospital a month and a half. Yeah. So I couldn't take nothing orally. Everything was given to me intravenously. A month and a half, and then the doctor delivers that line that you will reemphasize throughout your book. You drink, you die. You drink, you die. See, the thing is, is that for a regular person, that would be enough, right? But for an alcoholic, me hearing that, me hearing you deliver that line in the book and, and the power of that coming from your doctor, I knew in my heart it wasn't enough. See, the thing is, you can't scare an alcoholic. You can't convince an alcoholic that just, you're just going to stop, right? For me, that's not possible. Eventually, the insanity of alcoholism returns, right? Yes. That, that need to, 
that need to pick up that drink again. And I think I, I, I didn't I didn't know how to deal with my feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and my emotions. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you know, in this in my little notebook, I think I uh -huh. wrote you drink, you die on about ten different pages. <laughs> I kept returning to it, right? Because right, right. I understand the obsession and the and the uh, and the and sort of the insanity of what this thing right. is that we have, right? Exactly, it's insane to do the th same thing over and over that right. they say. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, but uh, to us, it feels good, though. Yeah, you see, you think the thing is, is we live in America, and in America right now, people refuse to feel pain. It, it's crazy. It's how we find ourselves in this opioid epidemic right now. Oh, for sure, yeah. We don't want to feel any kind of pain in this country. And back yep. when our parents were growing up, right? Yep. That's how you knew you were alive. You woke up in the morning, your back hurt from working yes. all day. That's how yep. you sort of felt like a man. Now you felt people, like you're living. That yeah. means you was doing something. Exactly. That means you was living. That's exactly. The, I got a headache. I'm stressed out from all of this. Yes, that's beautiful. That means you exist. Uh, but somehow, you know, the pharmaceutical companies, the medical professions have tried to convince us that we don't need to feel pain at all in this country. You know what I'm saying? We, we wasn't confident enough in ourselves to realize that. You know what I'm saying? So, yep. so um, I stopped drinking because of acute pancreatitis. I stopped drinking in 91. So I was able to, you know not drink for 91, 90, no, in 1990, I stopped drinking because of acute pancreatitis. Right. So in 1993, in 1993, I stopped drinking in 1990. I remember that. We put out, um, I think we put out the Back From Hell album and, and it didn't do well, but I didn't care because- yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm dealing with these other issues. The last thing I was worried about was radio play sure. and a record sale. You know what I'm saying? And then in 1993, um, Pete Rock, uh, one of the greatest producers in hip-hop, Pete Rock and Seal Smooth, Pete Rock produced the title track on the Down With The King album. Now, you got to understand something. In, the, in 90, from 90 to 93, hip-hop had changed. We was respected, but we wasn't participating sure. anymore. Yeah. You know, your legends, pioneers, this and that, but you had Pac, you had Biggie, Cypress Hill, Ice Cube, yeah. the, the, everything changed. We were still loved, but we wasn't down anymore. Yeah. So in 93, um, Pete Rock produces Down With The Kings. So I was sober for three years, right? Um, when Down With The King came out, we was back on the road, back on the charts. We was opening for Marilyn Manson. We was opening for ZZ Top. We was opening for Limp Bizkit. Uh, we was opening for Naughty by Nature, Tribe Called yep. Quest. Now we're, and we're killing everybody. The last thing you want to do is put Run DMC on before you. <laughs> so we killing everybody, and we dropped it down with the King video. And when that video came out, you would think something inside of me would say, I'm back. It's time to celebrate. Let's get this money. But I got depressed. Mm. Something in me, I got depressed. And I still wasn't drinking. And then I was depressed for, what, 93, 94, 95, 96. It got to the point in 96 where 
this depression became so unbearable, I didn't want to live anymore. Mm. So I was thinking of committing suicide, Jim. Like, I don't like what I'm feeling. I can't drink. Now, it was like, I can't drink no more. So what should I be alive? I'm feeling depressed. I'm miserable, but I can't drink because I got pancreatitis. So I got all of these emotions and feelings. And that that just became unbearable where I said, I just want to end everything. And then I said, oh, no. Before I kill myself, people know who this DMC guy is. They know the king of rock. They know my Adidas. They know walk this way. They know first to go gold, first to go platinum, first on the cover of Rolling Stone, um, first on MTV. Everything that hip-hop yep. is doing, they say it's because me running Jay. But I'm really just Daryl McDaniels from Hollis, Queens, New York, New York. No different from anybody else on the face of the earth. So I said, before I kill myself, I want to let the world know who Daryl is. So... I got the idea, I'm going to write a book. And in this book, I want to say, yo, what's up, world? I'm DMC from the groundbreaking rap group, Run mm. DMC. You know me, first to go gold, first to go platinum, first on the cover of Rolling Stone, first with the big sneaker deals, all that stuff. But I'm really just Daryl McDaniels from Hollis, Queens, New York. I was born May 31st, 1964. And when I said that, I identified part about me. I was like, oh, I know my birthday, but I don't know no details to it. So I called my mom's up. I didn't say, Mom, I'm about to kill myself, so I need to know this. Because she she would have lost. I said, yo, Mom, I'm writing this book. I know my birthday is May 31st, 1964. I just need a couple of details about the day I was born to make it more interesting for the reader. Uh, What time I I asked her what time I was born, what hospital, how much did I weigh? She told me. She said, I love you, son. Hung up the phone. Her hour went by. She called back with my father on the phone. Mm. Hey, son. Hey, dad. What's up? They hit me with this, Jim. We have something else to tell you. And I'm like, okay, shoot. I'm thinking it was going to be something like, oh, when you was born, there was a power outage in the hospital and they still delivered you. No, they hit me with this. Well, you was a month old when we brought you home and you're adopted, but we love you. Bye. Click. Wow. So they hit me with that, right? Right then and there is when <laughs> the arrival feeling needed to be satisfied. Right. So I started drinking again. So I'm drinking again, and now it's different from when I stopped. Remember when I stopped, it was Old English, Fuzzy Nables, Rum and Coke, and Screwdrivers. Yeah. Now I'm drinking again. Uh-huh. It's Cavassier, Jack Daniels, Jim Beam, all of that stuff. So I started drinking again. 24 hours i didn't take a break now now i'm drinking 24 hours seven days a week after about from what 96 97 98 around 19 four years of doing this around 99 um no no it was around 2000 um my wife goes you trying to kill yourself you found a way to kill your subconsciously i found a way that i could commit suicide By doing something. I didn't have to jump. I didn't have to shoot myself. I could drink this and kill myself. But I lied and told my wife, no, the reason why I'm drinking is to celebrate my newfound, the newfound missing identity that um, I didn't know was there. My wife, she looked at me. She said, you're drinking because you can't emotionally deal with the fact that you just found out that you was adopted. And when she hit me with that, the high went away. 
and I realized that was my truth. Because remember, I'm not supposed to be drinking. I got mm. acute pancreatitis. Absolutely. And when I received that revelation, I didn't know where to go for help. So I only went to the, and I'm DMC. You know what yeah. I'm saying? I'm Daryl McDaniels. Sure. I'm known. I didn't know that there was a person, place, or something I could do to really help with what I was going through. Right. I went right back to the only thing that I knew, which was that alcohol. That and I started. Yeah. You were medicating and I started, yourself. Yeah. yeah. I started drinking 27, 24 hours, seven days a week until um, this is from like 2000 to 2004. And. I'm talking about from 2000 to 2004, there wasn't a time where I wasn't drinking. Right. Now, that's crazy. Now, here's the crazy part about it. I was still going to the gym. And now when I look back, I always wonder, why did people stay on the far side of the room when I was in the gym? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because the alcohol's coming out your pores. You sweating out. You smelling yep. like you stinking up the whole room. So make a long story short, it got to the point where I started realizing, yo, these people are right. So the greatest thing that happened to me was um, I went to rehab to stop drinking, but it was in rehab where I discovered therapy. Sure. Where I was able to sit there and look Daryl in the face and say, something's going on. What's your truth? How you feel? Um, Don't be ashamed of feeling weak and vulnerable and confused. All that's okay. When I went to rehab and discovered therapy, I realized that, I have everything necessary for me to survive, be accepted, and feel cool. And, you know, deep, I am the thing that alcohol could never um, compete with. Right. But prior to that, when I went into rehab, um, I went into rehab and I was diagnosed with suppressed emotions. When I first sat in front of my therapist, my therapist said, D, the reason why you're drinking is because you don't want to deal with your truth. And you're so worried about how everybody else is going to think about you. Mm. He said, once you get over that, you will not need Jack Daniels and Jim Beam to hang with your ass anymore. Huh. It's clear to me, listening to your book, that you've gotten to that place. That place of not caring what other people think about you anymore. And to me, that's real freedom. And it's the freedom that we were searching for yeah. in the bottle. Right. But it's the freedom that we never found. We found it in the beginning. We thought it was a false courage. It was a false. Right. Whatever we needed to get us through those little moments. But it wasn't real. Right. You found your way to that place, that place of freedom, the freedom that we're searching for. Exactly. Daryl, I want to go back to your parents, your adopted parents, the people who raised you. Byford and Banner, yeah. son of Byford, brother of Al. Banner's my mother and runs my pal. It's McDaniels, not McDonald's. These rhymes are Daryl's. Those burgers are Ronald's. I ran down my family tree, my mother, my father, my brother, and me. Nice. When you started to, what, so you get this knowledge that, that you're adopted, right? Yeah. And then you start racing through your mind. Yep. Right, which is shocking information, but you immediately start to try to piece it together and to try to make sense of it, right? And you're thinking about things when you were a child, when you were a young, when you were a young man, and uh, and you're thinking about yep. these other kids that came and went, yep. right? So your parents were taking in foster children, 
which to me is an amazing and a beautiful gift that you can give to a young person. You see, I grew up in foster care. I grew up because of my alcoholism and my addiction. Uh, I became a ward of the state. A ward of the state, yes. uh, As part of the juvenile justice system, instead of sending me home after a period of time locked up, they would send me to live with somebody else. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But when I think about your parents and what they did, Right. Not only for you, but for other children. Right. D, I mean, I was in my car driving, and my wife knows me. I'm a very emotional person. And she was driving the car. I was sitting in the passenger seat, and right. she hears me sniveling. Because, right, Because right. I'm an emotional cat. It, that's beautiful, man, that they had, their hearts were so big. Right? I know. Their hearts were so big. To give so a kid an opportunity. To give several kids Several kids. To give one is a miracle, right? Right. But to give several children the opportunity to have a safe place, to have great role models, to have great examples, to exactly to live good, upright lives. Exactly. Regardless of their situation, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I know it's crazy. It got me, man. You know, it's 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 funny too because in therapy, my my therapist said D. All your rhymes, Christmas time in Hollis, Queens, it was always family friendly. She said, you always rhymed about the one thing, the most important thing to a kid. You know what I'm saying? It was family and people that love you. Mm. She said, you subcon, you didn't even know you was adopted and you was putting those messages out there. You so know, when I look back on that, that's yeah, crazy. You yeah. know what I'm saying? I didn't when I was doing all that son of Byford, it's McDaniels. You know, everything with me was my family, mother and father, brother here, Daryl, you know what I'm saying? She said you was putting those those messages out there because that's who you was put here to be. And when I look back and remember all those kids that was in inside of my house, it wasn't until I met other adoptees and then I looked back and said, oh, I was one of them. You know, it's like, like, like you said, Jim, you was awarded a state. I was awarded a state till I was five years old. What had happened was the other kids' parents came back to get them. Yeah. My parents wasn't coming back to get me. My birth parents wasn't coming back to get me. So my mother and father, you know, it's a cute little story. They looked at me sitting over there playing with my toys and said, what are we going to do with this one? Yeah. And my dad was, I guess we got to keep him. Maybe he's going to grow up to be somebody special. So, you know what I'm saying? And look what happened. So that's crazy. You kind of special. Well, that's why. kind of special. I know. So that's why the path that I went down, it led me to meet Sheila. And then Sheila told me she was adopted, too. And said, we need to do something for the kids, you know, for those orphans or for those kids in the foster care system who hopefully will get back to their families or they might not. Those are always Sheila's first words. We need to do something for somebody, whoever it is. Right. What a what a wonderful, beautiful, giving soul. And for those that are listening that don't know, we're talking about Sheila Jaffe, who is yes. a huge casting director in Hollywood and actually yes. does many of my brother's movies. She's also yes. on the board of our charitable foundation. An yes. amazing, amazing woman who uh, just thinks the absolute world of you. I mean, she's the person that brought us together. Yes, she is. She is. Well, she's a, it was her idea to start the Felix organization because... The, the key thing was she looked at me, I looked at her, and she said to me, there's a bunch of us out here. Wow. There's a, so we need to do something. And it, and it was all about just trying to give those kids that opportunity to feel. See, our right. lives are about feeling. 
You know what I'm saying? It, it, um, I remember when I was in rehab, um, they were saying our addictions or our desire to get high is the constant search for God. Yeah. When we don't realize God, we are the gods or God is in us. You know what I'm saying? Uh. So we do all of this stuff. It's like that book, what, The Alchemist? I don't know if you all read that book, The Alchemist. Yeah, but you go around the world looking for all of this, and then you realize the thing that you're looking for was sitting in your room the whole, del- the, the whole damn time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, for me, it was just always about um, um, feeling good. We want to feel good, and I didn't know that I didn't need the old English to have the good feeling. Because, like, most of my great raps I wrote without being high. Right. But in my dumb head, I'm saying, no, nah, but I need to be high to perform them. But now I realize I'm so I'm way better than I was in the 80s. Right. Which is crazy. Yeah. But then here's the here's the crazy. Um, I don't think it's even being naive. I remember being on tour in 1988. I was a little naive. In 1988, we was on tour. It was Run DMC. Public Enemy, Eric B. and Rakim, EPMD, and Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Wow. So we all, Will Smith, every, we all on the road together. And I remember Rakim was on stage performing. So we all looking at Rakim like, damn, none of us could do this. Like, who is this guy? And I remember the conversation came up. And um, Chuck was the oldest of us. But he was only like 21 years old. Yeah. And I remember the conversation came up about getting high. Yes. And Chuck looked at all of us at 21 years old and said with that Chuck D voice, I never got high a goddamn day in my life. I'm a man, damn it. Yep. And I remember when Chuck said that, I had a 40 in my hand. I had cocaine in my pocket, a box in Newport and a nickel bag in my pocket. Yep. I remember I went to my room and I sat there. Because I thought Chuck was like the deafest thing to ever get on a microphone. He was. But I remember sitting in my room going, Chuck never got high a damn day in his life. How the hell does he rhyme so good? I thought that you needed to smoke weed or drink or do what everybody usually does to be a rapper or to be an MC. But the day that Chuck said that, I was totally disillusioned. And then I remember... um, um, the other guy that never got high. What's the guy named um, the Rock dude? Um, um, oh, not um, um, uh, Henry Rollins. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Henry Roll. I remember one day being around him, and he said, "I never got high a damn day in my life." And I said, "You are the most violent, powerful punk rock that I ever saw, and you don't get high." Oh yeah, yeah. But then coming out of rehab, I always remember when my therapist said, yo, D, you already had everything sure. necessary. I'm Matter sure, of fact, yeah. the alcohol was preventing you from reaching your purpose and destiny. So it's funny that once I stopped getting high, everything that I was supposed to be doing fell in place. I met Sheila. We started Felix Organization. Then as soon as I started stopped getting high, I run into Dave Navarro, Rob Dukes from Exodus, Sammy Hager, um, 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 Sarah McLaughlin. I started connecting with all the people that I was supposed to be connecting with. Right. And it's funny, my book comes out, and I'm working with um, um, Billy Morrison from <clears throat> from Billy Idol's band. I'm working with Sebastian Bach from Skid Row. I'm working with Dave Navarro, and we just together on a music thing. And then my book comes out, and they too come to me. 
Yo, yeah. D, you too? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yo, we just heard you. We just read your book. I've been sober for such and such. Yeah, yeah. And then we sit there. Instead of just talking about music, we talk about all of these feelings mm. and emotions that's like me and you that we had in common that we never talked about. Yeah. So I think it's important for anybody listening out there, the first person that will lead you to your victory is admitting, talking to yourself about the feeling, about yeah. the addiction, about the substance abuse, the anxiety, whatever it is. And then realize something. When you mention that to the world, it's nothing to be ashamed of because you are not alone. Right. And once you talk about it, everything that you're looking for will come to you. Yeah. Okay, so D, I, I just need to put this into perspective for people, right? So you're a huge star. You're a member of one of the biggest hip hop groups ever. Groups, period. Being right. on the cover of Rolling Stone, all these things. Walk this way, change yeah. the world. And then I and then I wrote in parentheses below it, but it wasn't enough. You're depressed. You're suicidal. Are you trying to tell me that fame just isn't enough? It isn't enough. It's not enough to fulfill you. It's not enough to define you. It's not enough to to make you happy. I mean, we live in a society now where in the social media world that we live in, right? Everybody's trying to present themselves as some sort of a celebrity. People are now famous for being on YouTube. And they think they're in search of, or they're striving to get to this place that the things that they are allowed to attain from their fame, the money, the, all that other stuff is gonna make them happy or fulfill them. Are you telling me that that's not enough? Because I really, really think that's such an important message for the young people today is that they, they're searching and they're looking for these false idols and this, this false hood of what fame and celebrity is. And, you know, I think for people who don't understand depression, right? Right. And right. sort of the, the chemical imbalance yep. and all of the different things that are happening to you inside your yep. body and in your mind, yep. um, you know, people in this country and in the world are so caught up in fame and fortune right, and all exactly. this other stuff that they think that's enough. Right. Right. And that's, as a matter of fact, it's nothing. Yeah. I, I think I, actually, it, nothing. I think it can actually be a contributor to the problem. Right. Oh, because no, for sure. You it's go like, from, you go from, you can't go anywhere without somebody pulling on you. Right. And then time right. does what time does. Right. And people move on and they do, and they're into yeah. different things. And you sort of right. have to learn. You have to. I think there's a recovery from that enormous fame as well. You oh. have to recover oh, from sure. that you, and yep. adjust from that. I watch yep. people in my family do that. Yep. You know, I watch my brother Donnie go. You talked about the musical change, right? So yes, biggest group in the world to yep. grunge, and they couldn't get on the radio. They couldn't At do all. anything. Nobody right? cares. And you have Nobody to adjust. Cares. You have to adjust.